All right, our ushers are uh, faithfully bringing the note sheets around along with pencils. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and grab a Bible. We would love to supply you with the Word of God so that you can know exactly what we're teaching. You can open your Bibles up to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 as we are making our way slowly but surely through this, uh, this wonderful Old Testament book that is so unique in the way that it attacks the questions of life. So please go ahead and uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 as we prepare to be in the Word together. I was <coughs> sitting there thinking about how ironic it was that we just sang a stanza which talked about how the winds and the waves know the voice of the Savior and know who commands them. And so uh, as I'm singing, the roof is creaking right above where I'm sitting. And I'm wondering if this old building is going to hold up to the end of this sermon. And it's just a good reminder to us. I know it's going to be a little bit distracting. You might be wondering if the trees at your home have fallen down yet onto the roof or if the fence is holding up. And there are so many things that would in this life that would easily distract us from the Savior if we don't put our minds where they belong. So I would encourage you to work through those things. Life is full of distractions. As much as we would love to create a, an, an environment that's very conducive for focus, there'll be days when it's just hard to think through what's going on in life and to deal with the calamity that we're facing. So don't let the winds be a distraction to you today. Be determined to be focused on what God has for you. Don't fear what's going to be at home when you get there. It'll be something the Lord will give you the strength to deal with. You know, we're always going to have something that could pull our attention away, whether it's our own blessed little children that would might interfere with us worshiping the Lord, whether it's, uh, whether it's worries about what's going on at work, or whether it's a relationship that we know needs resolution. There's always something that could pull us away from what we need to be putting our attention on. So let's, let's, let's have still souls together today as we seek the Lord and we ask Him to teach us from His Word. Uh, so often I read the Scripture and then pray, but let's just start with a word of prayer and just ask that whatever distractions might be uh, afflicting our minds, that God would take care of those for us, that He would settle us on Him, and, and that we might have a good time in His Word together today as we seek to grow. Let's bow our heads. Father, You are reigning supreme on Your throne, and no change in the weather, no shift in circumstance will affect that in the slightest and so, God, may we enjoy your rule today. May we be settled in the fact that you are worthy of our attention and our affection and our, our time. And so, God, let us, let us settle our minds and thoughts upon the cross today. Let us think about the redemption that is ours through the blood of the Lamb. Father, I pray that you would give us joy in your word together. I pray that you would show us Move our hearts in such a way that we might know how to apply these things directly to our own lives, to our situation that we're in right now. And Father, if we know of somebody else who could use this truth who's not here today, let us go with a message in our heart and on our lips that we might encourage others with the things you've encouraged us with. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So many challenges we face that remind us that we're not really the ones who are in control. Imagine if you were a, a NASA employee and you're trying to put a space shuttle into orbit. Years of prep done, countless hours of training, millions of dollars spent. There is a window of opportunity in which the atmosphere is lining up in just such a way that you can get that rocket into the sky and yet God's decided to whip up the winds that day and it becomes too risky to launch the ship. All must simply wait. And so all of your planning, all your training can't account for this. God is sovereign. What can we do to change what He has determined? 
You can imagine an, an elderly man who wakes up again and reaches over to find the bed empty where he for so many years would have waked to a wife. He spent so many years blessing the one that he loved and doing all he could to support her and to create a happy home, and yet life circumstances took her away from him. As much as we try to make life into what we want it to be, God is sovereign. What can we do to change what he has determined? After countless hours of study and sacrifice and labs, a recently graduated student is so eager to take what they have learned and to apply it in the workforce, to begin earning a wage that they can hopefully use to pay down some of that debt they accumulated and gaining all this knowledge, they are ready to go. And yet despite the strong grades, despite all the work that they put into it, the incredible effort, the spotless resume that they've sent out to business after business, no one hires. All they get back in return is a polite letter of rejection. God is sovereign. What can we do to change what he has determined? Friends, there is only one being in all the universe who has the power to undo every obstacle. And that being is not you. It is not me. How does that make you feel this morning? How do you respond to this cosmic truth that so much of what you would like to see happen in life is outside of your control, is beyond the reach of your hands? Are you frustrated by that fact? Have you grown content with that idea? Or are you still trying to figure it all out? God alone, the God of creation, the God of glory, determines the winds and knits life together in the womb. God alone writes the plot line of life, and only He knows how the vast array of circumstances are going to play out before us. And He knows why. He understands the reasons behind all of these things that rush upon us, that we cannot stop, that we cannot divert. To be a limited creature in a creation that you did not design and that you are not in control of comes with a certain degree of exasperation, doesn't it? How does that, frustrate, that frustration, how does that color the way that you see life itself? Is life even worth all of the effort if you cannot control it? If you cannot determine for certain how it will play out, if you cannot always see the meaning behind the trials that you must endure and the setbacks that you have to learn to power through, is life worth living? I assure you this morning, friends, that it is. Life is worth it. Or a God of infinite wisdom would not have set your life into motion. He would not have made you be where you are today. But from our limited vantage point here, from our perspective under the sun, living life on earth without the advantage of omniscient knowledge or limitless power, there could be difficulty in navigating the limits of being a created thing. And it is those particular frustrations that the author of Ecclesiastes will address today as we take chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 to heart. So let me read this for us out loud. But all this is laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. 
It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. <clears throat> Last week, Solomon pointed out that as limited human beings, we have come to terms with this reality that we cannot know everything. Our intellect can only take us so far. And so much of life is going to remain a mystery to us. But we came to the conclusion also that this fact cannot keep us from thinking things through and knowing what we can know. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to seek the knowledge of God, to not just write off knowledge and wisdom because you can't know it all. Know what God puts before you. Know what the Lord is willing to give to you in grace. God has provided all that we need for godliness and righteousness. His Word is a vast resource for this. So seek the Lord God. Seek His wisdom and His knowledge. And as this chapter progresses, as this concept unfolds here in chapter 9, we are likewise challenged to press on with life despite the fact that we are not in position to control its outcomes. Nor can we avoid the inevitability that our time here on earth will ultimately come to an end. So let's look at how that unfolds for us here. Laying to heart the limits of man's mind, Solomon takes note of the fact that everything that man does, yes, everything that man is, rests not in his own hands, but in the sovereign hands of God. Now, the kind of person that you are does not fully determine the outcome of your life. You see that clearly here in the Scripture. We are told in verse 2 that the same kinds of events, the same event happens to all kinds of people. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, you begin to see a division here. The way we see the world, black and white, good and bad, the one who sacrifices to the one who has no religious convictions and does nothing, the good and the sinner, the one who makes a vow and the one who pays no attention to covenants whatsoever. The same events pile upon all of us here on earth. And as much as we would like to believe that hard work and determination will overcome any obstacle, as much as we would like to, to think in our minds that slogan will only carry us so far as the sovereign will of God will carry us. Despite the fact that we want to hold on to the belief that good things happen to good people, the evidence of life trips us up and shows us that even the best examples of humanity often are forced to suffer through hardship and trial and strife and setback and loss. Their blessings don't always match their efforts to do what is right, at least not here in the life under the sun. 
And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see an example of this as Paul, a faithful defender of the gospel and a mighty man of God, is told by the Spirit of God that he must endure what is considered the thorn in the flesh here in this passage. We don't really know exactly what that is. Scholars have have conjectured what that might be. It could have been a physical malady. It could have been the weight of depression. We do not know. Even though he prays on three different occasions to this mighty God that he trusts and love, that God might take it away from him, that he might be relieved of that burden, God decides not to take it away. By our reckoning, Paul has given God every good reason to bless him, to give him good health, to give him vitality, to protect him as he does the work that the Lord has called him to. But for reasons beyond what he chooses to reveal, God is unwilling to grant that to his servant. The most determined and skillful among us, the one who follows the law most carefully, the best prepared, all will eventually live to see the proof that life is not really in our hands. It is in God's hands. So if you hear preachers who try to convince you that the secret to your success lies in living such a life that you find the right combination of faithfulness and you please God and that display of faith engages Him to give you what you want, then you're listening to someone who's leading you the wrong direction. There are many examples in Scripture of those whom God loves dearly, who He cares for, who He calls His own, and yet He allows them to struggle. The same thing that we often say will come upon the evil comes upon the good at times. And it's not always a punishment for something that they did wrong. Let's take a moment to apply this reality to one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And that is that salvation comes by grace alone. What is grace? Grace is the favor of God poured out on people who have done nothing to deserve it. Grace is a free gift. It is a beautiful display of love that is unmerited by the one who receives it. The majority of the people in the world believe that there is some kind of God. And the majority of those people are also quite confused about how you come near to that God. Are you going to go to heaven when you die? You ask that to most people, and they're going to answer in the positive. Yes, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But then you ask them why. You probe them further, and you try to figure out exactly what their reasoning is for their surety. Why do they believe that when life is done here, they will go on to blessing instead of judgment? And typically they're going to say, well, just look at my track record. I'm, I'm a good person. Or at the very least, I'm not as bad a person as I could be. Look at all the other worse people than me. If some people are going to go to heaven and other people are going to go to hell, surely I'm on the positive side of the ledger. Surely I have done enough things that God is happy with me and He loves me now because I'm a good boy, I'm a good girl, and I've listened to the things He's told me to do and I haven't broken the big laws. This mindset is what we call the works mindset. It acknowledges the existence of an almighty creator, of a wonderful being who is above us and who judges. But the works mindset says in order to get to that being, there are several things you must do to earn your place next to him. And where does this mindset come from? It springs from a couple of serious issues. 
First of all, man in general does not understand the weight of his sin. Man has not come to grasp the reality that when he breaks a law that God has given, he is not simply offending his fellow man. He's not simply putting in jeopardy the harmony of society. He's doing more than just taking a path that's not the best path. When man breaks the law of God, he is offending the one that puts breath in his lungs. He is striking out as an enemy against the one kingdom that stands against, uh, above all kingdoms. Our sin is a great, grave error. But in so much as we live in a world that tries to downplay the power of sin, that tries to downplay the severity of it, many in our society have become convinced that sin is nothing more than an inconvenience that be, can be corrected with an adjustment of behavior. When in reality, our sin is an indicator of the darkness of our broken hearts. That we are a people cold to God by nature. That we have walked in the same path that our forefather Adam set out on. That instead of doing what was right in the eyes of God and trusting Him, we have decided instead to entrust ourselves to decide what is good and what is bad, what is good and what is best, what is right and what is wrong, and how we're going to live our own lives. So man does not understand the heavy weight of sin. Secondly, man wants to believe that he is in control of his own destiny. The works mentality. This idea that I've done something wrong, but the power to undo it is in my hands, keeps control of my destiny in my own hands, doesn't it? If I believe that all I must do to draw near to the God of holiness and grace is work harder and change my attitude and my, uh, my, uh, my obedience, if I think that all I have to do is, is add some good works to cover up the bad things that I have done, then it's all on me. I determine where I'm going to go. I determine whether I end up in the good place or the bad place. And man loves that idea of control. Man loves to think, that his destiny will be determined not by circumstances that are beyond his own reach and grasp, but beyond the desires of his heart and his ability to live out the things that he desires. This works mentality is a serious poison to our nearness to the Lord God. Just think about how it affects something as simple as prayer. If you think that your good standing with God is based on what you do, it's going to totally change the way you approach God in prayer, isn't it? Your prayer is not going to humbly come to the Lord with a bowed heart, thankful for the free gift of grace that has been poured out upon you, asking God to do His great will because you owe Him everything. If you believe your good standing with God is based in part on what you have done to please Him, then you don't only come with an open heart, you come with an open hand and expectations that God has an obligation to fill that hand. He owes you something because you've done good. You've been better than the other people in your society. You have, you have earned a place in His favor. You see how prayer is so drastically affected by something as simple as the works mentality that is drastically different than a grace mentality. The truth of salvation 
disproves the mindset that we are saved by works. I'm going to read to you from Titus chapter 3. Listen to verses 4 through 6. This will be on the screen as well. This is the Apostle Paul reminding a fellow elder where this grace comes from, how we are saved. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Keep this, that on the screen for just a moment. He saved us. We did not save ourselves. He saved us. The change didn't happen when we got our mind right and we started doing the right things. No, it says that when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, that means He made us alive who were dead in our sins. He gave us the eyes to see what before we were completely blind to. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, again, not by our merit, but by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who is responsible for your salvation if you are saved? Not you. The Lord God is responsible for it. He has worked it out. He has earned it for you. And He has given it to you freely if He has called you to His throne. And here, all the way back in Ecclesiastes, friends, <laughs> so, so many hundreds of years before Christ goes to the cross, as, as God's people are in the thick of the Mosaic covenant of works, God is making it clear to us here, to all who will see, that our work does not determine the outcome of our life. The good and the evil, similar things happen to both. The one who keeps the covenant oath to the one who has no business with oaths, the same things happen to both. You can't figure out what's going to happen in your future because those things are written out by God. They are in His script, not yours. We cannot secure for ourselves a future of blessing simply by being obedient boys and girls. But you might push back against that and say, but did not the Israelites prove that works matter and that their sin kept them from great blessings? Yes, their sin did keep them from great blessings. But realize this, the grace of God kept them from being forsaken from Him. All this time as the law is before the Israelites and they are in a covenant which says, do my will and you will be blessed, they failed to do the will of God. And yet despite their failures, despite their inability to keep up with the demands that was put on them, demands that they said amen to when they entered into covenant with God, despite their failures, here is a God who loves them through it still. You see it in every book of the Old Testament that God's enduring love cares for His people despite their lack of worthiness. And so this God shows His grace not just in the pages of the New Testament but throughout the Bible as He doesn't do what He has every right to do. He does not cast away His people. He endures with them. He loves them through their failure. And He shows them again and again if you are going to be mine, it's going to be because of the work that I do for you, not because of the work that you can do for me. 
Friends, there is a mighty relief in this doctrine. There are many mighty reliefs in this doctrine, but let me just point out one of them to you. Many of you are struggling because every time something goes wrong in your life, you think this is the punishing hand of God telling you that He doesn't love you as much today as He loved you before you failed. How many of you have felt that before? Where you just wish that these bad circumstances that are coming out, you wish you hadn't done some bad thing to deserve them. And you're certain that if you would have just been more obedient, more faithful, that God would have taken that away. Well, look what the covenant of grace does to us and to that kind of thinking. You are not precious to God because you earned His favor. You are precious to Him because He chose to redeem you. So yes, there may be times when God allows the consequences, the natural consequences of our sin and our foolishness to do us harm. But there will be many times in your life when you're doing what you are supposed to do and it doesn't unfold the way you expect it to. You don't have to go back into the mirror and just say, what did I do to deserve this? Because what we did deserves something far worse than whatever it is we're getting today. No matter how bad the calamity is, whether it's sickness, whether it's poverty, whether it's broken relationships, our sin has earned us something way worse. Our sin has earned us the judgment of a holy God who is pure in every regard and has the right to demand nothing short of perfection from us. So friend, if you have played that game before, when you try to connect the dots and try to figure out the equation, what did I do wrong to earn this? And what can I do right to earn God's favor again? Spare yourselves, friends. Instead, look at the cross of Christ. Think of what a blessed joy it is that even though your circumstances are bad and even though your Father in heaven may in fact be chastening you or teaching you a hard lesson that He is doing it because He's your Father and He loves you and He will by no means forsake you. So this, this doctrine of grace is so critical to our interaction with God. You see, calamity is useful to God. It can very well be used as a proof that sin has consequences, but it is also a tool that God uses to craft His beloved into more faithful people. People who are not constantly loving God only because of the things He gives to them. But they are learning to love God simply for the fact that He's God and that He's worthy. See, God knows better than to build a kind of relationship with us where we're just constantly looking for the next earthly blessing. He gives us something deeper. He gives us a heart to love Him. And no matter what kind of blessings you lose from life, no matter what kind of things fade away or are taken from you, if you have Christ, you will never, ever lose your greatest blessing. You can stand confident knowing that the hardships of life are real, but your Savior is even more real, and He's yours and you're His. The way we live does not completely determine the way the events of our future will play out. And it is clear that Solomon here has one very important event in mind. Look again at verse 2. He says, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. 
the fact that that word event is in the singular should indicate to us that he's got one particular event in mind, and it's probably not a mystery at this point what that event might be. As Solomon has again and again and again brought our attention to this thing that we often don't want to pay attention to, which is the fact that the good and the wicked, the faithful and the unfaithful, the young and the old alike, all of us will one day face the event of death. That our time here on earth is limited. When a man is righteous, when a man is wicked, whether that man pays no mind to the things of God or is intently focused on it, God is the one who ends life for us. He is the conductor of the orchestra. And when his hand stops, our time here is finished. We cannot control the outcome of our lives and we cannot escape the inevitable threshold that all of us must cross to lead this life. What does this difficulty stir, stir in our hearts? What kind, of, what kind of effect does this have on us when we consider this reality? It can stir up in us a frustration so great that some even contemplate whether life is worth it or not. I know that we in this room are not all trusting in the sovereign hand of God right now. There are some who have never called on the name of the Lord here. Or there are some who have only called on the name of the Lord in form, but not in reality. And when we have not come to embrace, when we have not grown to love the sovereignty of God, then that sovereignty can become so frustrating to us our inability to secure the life we think we want to have can make us think that perhaps life is not even worth living. People get to this crossroads for different reasons. And I have no doubt that there are people among us today who have either been very seriously tempted to take their own lives or perhaps even have tried to and failed. It is good, friend, that you are alive here today. It is a blessing of God that if your heart was so heavy that it went to the darkest of places and thought that not existing would be better than existing without control, then God has mercifully spared you. And he has even, in his love, guided you to a place where this morning you are hearing from his word that life, no matter how broken and twisted it becomes, is better than no life. It is better than being absent. You have survived another day by the grace of God. And God has led you here to listen to him proclaim to you that life is worth it. In fact, it's largely an illusion to believe that you can even control your life. So this idea that in order to enjoy life, in order for life to be worth it, I've got to be in control, that is nothing more than a mirage. None of us is in control. God is the only one who is truly in control. And he has the power to redeem something so much more important than your life's circumstances. He has the power to redeem your very soul, the power to transform your existence in such a way that your futile reality becomes a reality that is rooted in meaning and purpose and truth. He can put to death the sin that is at the root of your suffering. He can wash away the sin that keeps you far from He he who can be your greatest joy. He will become your wonderful gift. He can put to death the sin that is at the root of it all. And he does that by reconciling you to him through Christ, his son. It is possible that you are already a believer 
and you're struggling with these questions of whether life is fully worth it or not. And you simply need to remember these wonderful things. Suicide is not only a temptation reserved for non-Christians, because Christians are susceptible to deception too, aren't they? And suicide happens when we buy into the lie of the enemy that life is not worth it unless we are totally in control. Depression, the weight of life's anxieties, shame for our sin and failures, uncertainty about the future, all of these things can sometimes cast a shadow upon the light of God so dark that we won't be able to see the things that we need to be able to see. We can fail to see the wonderful beauty of what God has done for us. Or we can slip into the error of believing that our sin or the difficulty of our circumstances are indicative that the cross <clears throat> cannot count for us. That our sin is too great. That we are not worthy. Do you see where we've gotten back to? <clears throat> we've gotten back to that idea of works again. Do not let the enemy push you back into what God has redeemed you out of. If you are despairing of life because you can't do what you want to do, then you are tangled up in this false doctrine of works. And I would encourage you, brother, sister, to realize that by grace, God can set you free from these things. <clears throat> there is no sin that you could commit that is greater than the cross of Jesus Christ. And there is no dark day that you cannot endure with the power that he provides for you. I want to caution you a little bit. Lately, it's become a very popular notion that we cannot speak ill of a person's decision to end their life. It's become taboo to question a person's motive when they commit suicide. And I want to push back against that today. Who is the giver and the taker of life? The Lord God is. And I respect that people go through serious depression. I respect the fact that life can be very, very difficult to the point where people cannot see that. But we cannot make suicide a normal and acceptable option because suicide is an insult to God. He is the one who gives life. He puts breath in the lungs. So if nothing else, if you are in the throes of heartache and that, that temptation comes to you, remember that God is worthy of honor and glory, that he is the one who deserves to be in control of those kinds of decisions. We have no business telling him that death is now when God has not said it is so. Better is a living dog than a dead lion. And as we hear this proverb, which was a common proverb in, in, in the area of the world that, uh, that Solomon lived in, we're thinking of the fact that dogs to the Hebrew were not like Spot at home, who you love and who is a part of the family and who comes up and licks you on the face and you're fine with it. No, to the Hebrew mentality, to think of someone as a dog was to think of them as somebody whose life was in such shambles that all they could do is try to eat the garbage that is left behind by creatures that were more able to provide for themselves. Dogs were disease-infested. They were in many ways a plague on society. And so here what Solomon is saying is that it is better to be a live dog, a dog being an unhonorable and a dirty creature in those days, but if it is alive, it has what a dead lion does not have. Lions throughout the ages have been considered animals of nobility, animals of great power and beauty and grace. And yet a dead lion can do nothing. 
A living dog is more valuable than a non-living creature that at one time had power and, and struck fear into the hearts of other animals. The lion's skill set and abilities were the envy of the other wild beasts, and yet once their breathing stopped, what kind of power could a lion yield? What kind of fear would it strike in others? It could no longer hunt. It could no longer defend its pride. It can do none of the things that a living, dog, a living dog, though far less noble, could potentially have the ability to do still. And so let this be an encouragement to those who've contemplated ending their lives, that even, even though life can get very dark at times, that as long as you are still alive, the Lord God that we have come to worship today can do a mighty work in your life. There is still hope for him to heal there is still hope for him to turn your mindset around. He is worthy of honor and praise, even if your circumstances are falling apart all around you. As we think about the last couple of verses of our passage today, even if the only sure thing we can know is death, that's more than a dead person can know. Death is the end of the life under the sun. Now, you might make the mistake of thinking that here Solomon is discounting the possibility of an afterlife. Don't make that mistake. He is focused strictly on the life under the sun. He's not claiming to know everything that happens after this life, but he's working with what he knows. We just learned that last week, right? We can't know all things, but what we know we need to be responsible for. And so from the perspective of Solomon, who doesn't have the benefit of the revelation that we have, that has clearly painted for us a picture that afterlife can be a place of glorious union with God, he's simply focusing on what he does know. That our life here on earth, once it is over, there is no more hope to change what we think here. There is no more hope to change our destiny. Think of John 4.9 where it says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus encouraged his people that while you are alive, you should be serving the Lord. Do the best that you can because there will be a day when you will no longer be able to preach the gospel to the lost. Have you thought about that? Many things will pass away when this world is judged. There's one thing that God glories in you that you cannot do once this life is over. You cannot reach the lost anymore. You cannot share the gospel with a sinner once you get to heaven. That phase will have passed. So be bold now. Serve the Lord God now while you have breath in your lungs. Do all that you can do to honor Him with your life, not to earn a place with Him, but simply because you've seen the goodness of His grace poured out into your life. And your proper response is to serve Him in gladness and to lift up the name of this one who has made your reality night and day different than it was before you ran into Christ. The love and the hate and envy of the dead has passed away with those who have passed away. They no longer have a share in what goes on here in the land of the living. Verse 6 is also a reminder that we need to be careful that we don't become too transfixed upon those who we love once they have passed away. And this is, a, this is a real sad condition that I've seen time and time again where somebody is so attached to a loved one who passes that their absence here becomes almost like a disability that cripples them, where they are frozen. They cannot love anymore. They cannot see the great joys that God has given to them because they're so fixed on the one joy that they loved the most. The Hispanic culture celebrates what is called Dio de los Muertos, where 
those who passed on before are exalted. And sometimes that crosses the line and becomes almost like ancestor worship. We've got to be very careful that we understand our time here is important, but it is not everything. And once our time here is done, we cannot let our minds and hearts be tangled up with the idea that perhaps my loved one is constantly watching me or, or I've got to be a good person now to please my one who has passed on. Let us see the reality of Christ instead and realize that there is one that we live for, the one that we live to exalt. There is one that we worship, and that is the Son of God. Honor the dead, but do not let your longing for them cripple you from experiencing the blessings that God has in store for you today. Friends, where there is life, there is hope. God still has the power to work. And for the non-believer, that God might change your heart as you come to recognize that the sin you thought was a minor thing before, an inconvenience, you begin to see that it has actually cosmic ramifications, that your sin against God separates you from Him because He is so perfectly pure and holy. God may work in your heart a transformation. He may help you to see that your sin is so serious that it must be dealt with. And the fact that you can't deal with it yourself means that you've got to have a Savior. The scripture teaches us that one and only Savior is Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came and lived the perfect life you could not live, a life completely free of error, a life that was pleasing to God the Father every moment that Jesus drew breath. And that life that he lived that was so spotless and so worthy, he allowed to be crushed on a cross. He suffered like a sinner rather than be exalted like a king. He was lifted up to become a curse for us. And in doing so, he took upon himself the guilt that all sinners who would trust in him would ever bear. And he put it to death once and for all. So that your sin would not just be brushed to the side by a God who is holy and just and must punish sin, but so that your sin might be crushed on Christ. So that the true penalty that you deserve to pay would be paid, but not by you, but by the glorious Son of God. If you have come into this place depressed and hopeless, I pray that this gives you hope that in trusting Jesus Christ, when you put your life in his hands, that you can be made new. For the believer, I pray that as we think of these things and consider the power of these words, that you would recognize that God can heal, that God can overcome, that God can make right. And even if that does not happen in this life, there are blessed promises that he has made to you that when this life is finished, when life under the sun is done, that you will enter into a glorious eternity that is free from all of the things that would hinder you right now. Every shadow will be cast out because that darkness cannot exist in the light of Christ. I want us to look again at the beginning of our passage for just a moment. We began by hearing that all the deeds of the righteous and the wise are in the hands of God. What greater hands can life be in? To some, that is, that is a horror that all the blessings of life are in someone else's hands beside their own, that they don't control their fate. But friends, you are so much better off that your life is not in your own hands. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if God is your Lord and Savior, then your life is in a set of hands that are trustworthy and sure. Your life your destiny, though you do not know it, though you cannot control it, is being written by one that you can trust 100%.
He does what is right for His people. His people have always been in His hands. Deuteronomy 33, 3-4. Yes, He loved His people. All His holy ones were in His hand. And so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. The people of Israel were in the hand of God. He carried them through. He strove with them. He endured through their failures and through their rebellion. And then in John 10, 28, don't forget this wonderful promise. When Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. You are in the hands of God. That is where you will stay. There is no depression that can rob you of that. There is no hardship. There is no circumstance that will ever prove to you that God loves you not. If you are His, you are precious to Him and you will be forever. Life is worth living. Doubly so if you've come to find the meaning of life, which Solomon has been building towards. The meaning of life is not for you to gain control of yourself and to establish the will that you have always wanted, but instead to think of Christ, to think of the Lord God and to recognize that His will is better than your will. And if you are His, then His will will be done. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for the wonderful words of your scripture that are such an encouragement to us. We are grateful for the ways that they have set solid ground underneath our feet today and helped us to think more clearly about things that are often confusing to us. I do pray, Lord God, that as you shepherd us and guide us towards a better understanding of this life through the book of Ecclesiastes, that you would pare away, that you would prune away any dead branch that is not bearing fruit in our lives, any train of thought that comes from the world and not from your word, any mentality that would be bitter against your sovereign leadership, And replace it, Lord God, with a new sprout, with a green branch that draws its power and strength from the true roots of Israel, from Jesus Christ, our Savior. Pray, Lord God, that you would have us flourish with fruit, not because our lives are easy or because we're getting our way, but because your way and your will is being accomplished in our lives, even when we suffer. And so, Lord God, we thank you for every good thing that you give to us and even for every hard thing that you call us to endure. May your strength be the power that pulls us through. We love you and thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you for the covenant of grace. We persist in it because you are good and your promises are always true. In Jesus' name, amen.